So I invite you to turn with me now to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we started our studies in the book of Romans last Sunday, and uh, we're continuing in verse 8 through to verse 15. So let's pray together. And I'll say a few words of introduction, then we'll read the passage. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this word that's come before us. Again, we, we seek your help in understanding it, that uh, for all our human powers, when we come to your word, we seek the presence of your Holy Spirit amongst us to speak to us and speak into our hearts, uh, and Lord, to make the word live. Uh, so Father, we pray we would hear it and receive it, as the very word of God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we started looking at uh, the book of Romans last week, uh, and we've noted how important the message of Romans has been to the history of the church, uh, for the simple reason that it is the, uh, undoubtedly the greatest unfolding of the gospel and its implications that you will find um, in all of Scripture. Uh, Paul wrote this, some 20 years after his conversion, um, in the mid-AD 50s, 57 maybe. And uh, Paul had, at that point of writing the letter, had not yet been to Rome. He'd never been. Yet there was a church planted there, probably as a result of the Romans who were present on the day of Pentecost 20 years earlier. And they heard the, uh, uh, the sounds of Peter and the apostles preaching the gospel in the center of Jerusalem. And those uh, Jewish converts would have gone back to Rome and uh, perhaps established a church there. And uh, we noted that in the middle of his introduction, which is all of verses 1 through to 7, it's uh, quite a staggering introduction to a letter, uh, he cannot stay away from the gospel uh, for too long. So he starts speaking about the, the gospel promised in the scriptures, the holy scriptures, through the prophets. And so what we have in the Old Testament is uh, the prelude to the gospel. Indeed, the seeds of the gospel are there. And then he goes on to speak about uh, Jesus Christ and how he, he is encountered in his death and his resurrection. And, uh, and so we can come to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we can know uh, the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Because he has suffered and died, and he has gone from being humiliated, his state of humiliation, to his state of exaltation as the one who's been raised up. And then he spoke about the the gospel that is proclaimed to the nations, that it goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, uh, where the gospel is proclaimed. And Paul is a a taker of that gospel to, to the Gentiles particularly. But his, his strategy is always to go to the synagogues, to preach the gospel to the Jews, and from there uh, to spread out amongst the, the, the non-Jewish population, the Gentile population, that men and women, boys and girls, might become Christians and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the, this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. And uh, what it does for Paul and what it does for any Christian is it creates a hunger and a longing that drives him on in ministry. 
And we see that here in this passage today, this longing that comes from the gospel. So I invite you to turn now and let's read these uh, few verses from verse 8. And Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to, to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So I want you to notice, first of all, uh, a word that pops up uh, through this passage. <clears throat> and it's that little word, you, uh, nine times in eight verses. For example, in verse 11, uh, Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And what we're seeing here in Paul is the kind of drive uh, that uh, has the situations of other Christians at his heart. Paul cannot but think of other Christians and think about their needs and think about what they want. And he is filled with an intense longing. And so he says that there in verse 11. I long to see you. I long to be there with you. And so we can see the effects that the gospel has in Paul's life. Uh, how, how the gospel has radically changed Paul's own heart. As he sees himself bound to these Roman Christians. As they share with him a common communion with Christ. Even though he has never met most of them. Though he does know some of them. Uh, in chapter 16 you'll notice that he mentions many names. So he has met some of them. Maybe in his travels, and they've been traveling around, and uh, he has bumped into them. But he longs to be of some use to them, principally through the preaching of the gospel. He longs to bring it to more people as they are brought within the fold of the covenant community. He wants to preach the gospel. And my friends, as we start the study this evening, this afternoon, is there anyone here in this room who cares about the gospel and its effects in this Pauline way? Is there anyone who has it on their heart to see the gospel spread in this way? I want to look at this longing and I want to see how it affects Paul. And my hope is that we, as we study it together, we too will get some, will catch something of the, the fire of the gospel that drives us on here in Solihull. So first of all, notice that Paul has a, a longing that fuels his prayers. Like many of Paul's letters, he begins by expressing how the news about the Romans 
has moved him to thankful prayer. So you see that there in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And clearly, this is the kind of church that was having an impact, that was getting people talking. And you may remember that, uh, if you don't already know, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have email, or even a reliable postal service. They didn't have anything. They just had word of mouth. But they began to speak to their friends and to their neighbors. And somehow news spread about this church in Rome. It was getting around the the known world at the time. And even Paul is hearing about it. As he's making his way to Jerusalem. As he was at the time of writing. He has heard about the, the state of the church in Rome And so it creates a a longing in him. And importantly, it fuels his prayers. So what does he pray about? Uh, Verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That's a very practical, down-to-earth prayer, isn't it? I move to pray that I can get there so I can go and be with them. He wants to get over there. He wants to, to meet his brothers and sisters and have fellowship with them. And so in a sense, it's a, it's a very deeply personal prayer request. And I think we can learn quite a bit about prayer in examining Paul's longing here and how it drives into prayer. Uh, John Murray, a great theologian uh, in his commentary on this, makes a few observations about this prayer. And uh, they're all very useful, and I've condensed them down to three main things. Uh, He has many more, but I I thought maybe three would be as much as we could bear today. uh, And the first is this. The Paul has a desire, but no certainty that his desire would be fulfilled. And isn't it true that a lot of our praying comes into that category? We have a desire for something, but we have no certainty that that desire is going to be fulfilled. There are prayers that we can pray, but we're not quite certain that God wants to do it. Now, there are some prayers that we can pray where we can be certain that God will do it because he's promised it. Uh, For example, praying that the Lord Jesus Christ would build his church. Uh, We know that he will do that. And we can pray that with absolute certainty that he shall do it. But there are many prayers that we can pray for which there are no specific promise. But what Paul shows us here is that these can be the legitimate subject of our praying, whether we're certain or not. Now, Paul is not expressing a sinful desire here. There are no self-indulgent motives. It was a good desire. He wanted to go and be with his brothers and sisters. But even a good desire doesn't necessarily bring a certainty of outcome. Now, that's important for us to understand. There are some people who would have us believe that real faith is when you pray believing that you'll get exactly the outcome that you want. And only then will you be expressing real faith. 
But we don't see that here. What we see is the longing of a heart and that longing fueling a desire and a prayer, the issues in a prayer. And the reason that that's okay is because his faith is not in a particular outcome, but his faith is in the God to whom he is praying. He puts it in God's hands. God knows best. So that's the the first thing. Paul had a desire, but no certainty that it would be fulfilled. But here's the second observation about his prayer. Uh, The fulfillment of that prayer had been frustrated, but he keeps on praying it. Look at verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. He's made plans. He's tried. But the frustration of not being able to get there has not stopped him praying that desire to go and be amongst these brothers and sisters. Because it's still a good prayer coming from earnest longing. And in the wise providence of God, God has a purpose in making his people wait for an answer. Isn't that true? God often makes his people wait for an answer. He often makes them wait in order to move them to enter into a mode of persistent prayer. Not just a one-off whim, but a persistent longing that issues in persistent Praying. You see, in a sense, it's a test of your heart as you pray. How much do you really want what it is that you're praying for? Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, asks a simple question. Uh, what is prayer? Uh, beautifully simple. But the answer begins like this. Prayer is the offering up of our desires to God. And it says a lot more, but I want to just focus on this idea. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. This is the distilled wisdom of the church in the examination of Scripture that tells us what is prayer. Prayer is the off, an offering up of our desires unto God. It's interesting, isn't it, that answer? It puts a lot of weight On our desires. In fact, desire is a requirement if we're going to pray properly. Now, is it possible that one of the reasons that your prayers and my prayers in life are so weak and so ineffective is because the things that I pray for, I don't really desire? I don't have any actual longing for. I know I should pray for certain things and certain people, uh, and yet in my heart of my hearts, I don't really care that much. We can't say that about Paul. It's one of the evidence, what's the evidence of his heartfelt desire? Well, it's persistence. He keeps praying it. As circumstances change, he keeps praying that same desire. That he wanted to go and meet with his brothers and sisters. Persistence. And then thirdly, a third observation about his praying. 
that he is submissive to the will of God in this matter. You look at verse 10. uh, He tells us, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. By God's will. There are some things, as I said, that we know are the will of God, like the building of the church of Jesus Christ. And so there's, in a sense, there's no point in praying to the Lord Jesus Christ to build his church and then saying, if it be your will. Well, he's told us it's his will, so he's going to do it. So why say that? So don't say that when you've got a promise in front of you. But there are many desires where we're not certain of God's will. And so, we do not demand of God what we desire. Nor do we claim things from God that he has not promised. Our God is not at our beck and call, but we are at his. And so in those cases, in humility, I can express my desires to God, but then I can say, by God's will, if it be your will. And that's a right and appropriate way to to pray. Ultimately, Paul, you see, has this deep love and submission to his heavenly Father that he knows best and that in his will he will answer accordingly. Now, I put it to you that these three observations are, give us a liberating view of prayer. They give us a, a real freedom in praying because we can just pray our desires. If we desire something, then God gives us the encouragement to come and ask for what we desire and ask him to fulfill it. But it's up to God to decide whether he wants to give us it. And so we say, if by his will. And if it's within his purposes, it's up to him. And he will give it when he sees fit. As I said, my, our faith is not in a particular thing that I pray for. My faith is in the God who has the power to grant that thing or to withhold that thing. And true faith in prayer is seen in being patient in asking and leaving the matter to his perfect will, knowing that he is a perfect father who knows exactly what we need. Now, of course, the question arises, what if the thing I pray for and I desire is actually selfish or sinful or unwise or something? Well, we can trust God that he will make known to us whether that's true so that we can change. You see, one of the things that God is doing as the days go by, as the weeks go by, as the years go by, is he is forming and shaping us over the years by communion with him in his word and in prayer, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he makes our wills more and more in alignment with his will. See, isn't it true that in Psalm 37, verse 4, the psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will shape the desires of your heart. 
So as you, you and I draw near to God, we cannot but be changed. And your prayers will change as time goes on. So having spoken about expressing our desires to God, I'm going to stick my neck out here and talk about our church. And I want to share with you what I desire, what, what I desire for this church. I'm going to be a bit Pentecostal about it. How about that? I want to see, here's what I want to see. And here's what I'm praying for. I want to see Solel Presbyterian Church established in a building, in a location where we can pursue local mission with energy and vigor. I want to see 100 people in our church regularly meeting on the Lord's Day. Now that's not too much of a stretch. We were, before COVID, we had 50 to 60 people coming. So we're looking to see to God to double the size of the church. And I want to see most of that growth coming from conversions. Not just rearranging the decks and the, the chairs on the Titanic as people move from church to church, but seeing people converted to Christ. I'd love to see six elders in our church and six deacons. I'd love to see another associate minister working here and together with that team and the church together working towards another church plant nearby. But all of that by God's will. He will build his church, but I don't know that he's going to build it here in Solihull. But by God's will, we will see the church grow. I trust So let's ask God for these things. Why not? Will you join with me in asking for these things? And persistently asking for these things. And caring that God answers these things. And caring about the state of the gospel here in Solihull. May God move us to have that gospel longing. Well, that's the first thing. The second and third things will be a bit bit shorter, but the first thing is a longing that fuels prayer. But here's the second thing. A longing for fellowship that changes people. In verses 11 and 12, uh, we see this longing for fellowship. But there are two sides to, uh, to what Paul is longing for. Firstly, Paul is uh, thinking about what he can bring to them. So in verse 11, he wants to be able to impart some spiritual gift to them. Now it's not entirely clear what is meant by spiritual gift. But we do know how Paul went about his work. That his primary task was to preach and teach the word of God. And as the spirit takes hold of the word, he makes it effective in the hearts of the hearers. And so then remarkable spiritual things begin to happen. Uh, The miracle of rebirth happens in the hearts of men and women. So Paul wants to see that. I think that's maybe what he means by imparting a spiritual gift. Now maybe we might think that's a bit big-headed of Paul. 
Do you think your gift is so great that you're going to have that effect on people? Uh, But you'd be wrong, of course. Paul is not big-headed at all. He just understands how spiritual things work. That God gives people callings and gifts. For example, Paul himself to be an apostle and preach the gospel, and the rest is up to the Spirit of God. But Paul believes this with all his heart. That if he plays his God-given part, then he is convinced that spiritual gifts will be given. So that's his side of it, this mutual encouragement. But the other side of it, of this fellowship, is his desire to benefit from being with the Romans. He too wants to be encouraged. He wants to receive from them. He wants to meet them and see how their faith is. He wants to see, is their faith real? Is it Christ-centered? Is it lively? Is it eager? And in seeing that, there is great encouragement given to the preacher. Friends, this is a picture that we can, that we need to take note of and, and learn from. There are a great many things that can excite us about a church and being in a church and bring a smile to our faces. Uh, Supposing we did see 100 people come to this church regularly. Do we get excited about the number of people or do we get excited about the fact that their lives are being changed? This is the kind of thing that will bring sustainable joy. When a church sees lives being changed... Where the church itself has the desire to to have the word of God at the center. And we begin to share our faith with one another as we encourage each other and build each other up. And we go out into the world and we're in the habit of sharing with others. And it's more than just simply passing the time of day and assembling in in a room together. Let me ask you this. This afternoon, what, what do you long for when you think of other Christians? Maybe you think of other Christians and you long for something completely different. What do you long for when you come to a church like this? And remember that what you long for is going to be conditioned about whether you walk closely with Jesus Christ. He will shape you and he will form you. you want to come to a church like this and be a blessing and a help to others in faith? Well, you may not know what your gifts are, your abilities are. You don't know how you're affecting anything. But it all starts with desire, doesn't it? It starts with a longing. Uh, that gospel longing where the gospel has changed your heart. And you want to come to, to meet with other brothers and sisters. And you want to share with them in some way, whatever way possible. Using whatever you have. To encourage others. You want to come here and be blessed by the words of God. By word-centered fellowship. And if the answer, if you're on, and you'll know the answer to this. I, I don't know the answer to this. I just put the question. But if the answer to those questions is no, and honestly, just search your hearts for a moment... Where is your heart in all of this? Then at best, you're spiritually sick. Where is your heart this afternoon? Paul looks to to fellowship 
and to be part of fellowship that affects his life and how he, he can be a help to others. But finally, here we see Paul and Paul a longing to fulfill his gospel calling. I note here that uh, Paul's, in verses 13 to 15, Paul's desire is simply to fulfill his calling to preach the gospel wherever he can. In verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, what kind of obligation is that? Now, the Greek word there, it can be used to mean some kind of debt, but we need to be careful here because for most of us, the idea of a debt or an obligation seems quite burdensome. You know, if you owe somebody money, then it may weigh upon you until you pay it off, or it should. (laughs) Or if you owe your employer a certain number of hours of work as an obligation, then it can be quite a burden, especially if you're not happy in your work. But is that what Paul means here? Is that the kind of obligation that Paul is talking about here, the kind of legal burden that has to be fulfilled? Well, of course not. What Paul is expressing here is a debt of gratitude to God. That is, Paul having had visions of the grace and mercy of God in the gospel, in giving his own son to suffer and to die in our place, and then to rise from the dead in glorious victory, uh, is for, for him to think all that is then to think, what kind of God is this? That he has been merciful to me, a sinner, the one who is was once an enemy of God, that he has now become a friend of God, all by grace. Once somebody who is determined to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, now has been received into the fold of the church of Jesus Christ, and is now put in a prime position to be able to preach the gospel. And Paul, as he thinks about that, he says, what kind of God is this? And so he's filled with gratitude. And it's an obligation of gratitude. And it's out of his gratitude that he feels that sense of obligation to God. It's not a burdensome thing. He's willing to be a slave to God. That's what he describes himself as in the very first verse. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He's willing to preach the gospel wherever he can. His primary calling was to go to the Gentiles. But it really doesn't matter what kind of Gentile he goes to. He can go to cultured Gentiles. He can go to barbarian Gentiles. It doesn't matter. He feels an obligation to all of them that comes from his gratitude to God brought to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I wonder if you've ever felt that kind of obligation that comes because of the gospel coming into your life. Have you felt that impulse that comes because you know that you have been truly saved by Jesus Christ? And that impulse propels you out to fulfill all that God would have you do for his name's sake. And I say again, this is not some kind of uh, legal obligation that's brought about by guilt or some kind of legal or contractual obligation, but it's a gospel obligation. It's what the Puritans used to call an evangelical obligation brought by the evangel, the gospel. 
Well, we're nearly finished. We see here a deep longing that has been worked into the life of Paul. It's a longing that's been brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's received. And it has practical effects. It fuels his prayers. It creates purposeful relationships in Christ. It creates an imperative to play your part in this mission to bring the gospel to the world. I just leave you with this question. Do you have that longing yourself? And, you know, let me just dig a bit deeper. Do you actually know Jesus Christ as you should, if at all? There may be that somebody here who has come to the conclusion they do not yet know Jesus Christ. Do you know that you are desperately corrupt, if that's the case, and that you need him? And without him, you're lost forever. You should get to know him. This is what the gospel does. Changes lives inside out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful word that we see here in Paul. As we go with him and he expresses his heart to us, we discover that the gospel is just not, not just a piece of information, some data that we can store in our memory banks, but it's a life-changing power. And we see it in Paul. And Father, we pray you give us that great longing. Lord, initially we pray that at least you begin to move us to pray with a deeper longing and to pray persistently for the things that we desire. Oh, Father, how we thank you that you invite us to express our desires to you in prayer and you will change us if these desires are out of kilter with your will and your purposes. But how we love you that you are a father, the perfect father, who delights to hear his children pray. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.